Welcome back to another episode of A Bite of D&D, where we add flavor to your games and campaigns. This week, we are going to be doing something just a little bit different. I have a special guest with us here alongside our regular co-host, Zach. How's it going, guys? And along with us is Alton. Yes, sir. Hello, everybody. Uh, and we are going to be taking a look at our, our first glimpse at an upcoming uh, Dimensions RPG Kickstarter that they're going to have going. Alton, uh, I, don't, I don't need to ramble on about that. Why don't you give us the lowdown on what Dimensions is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Dimensions fundamentally is designed to be the simplest role-playing game in the world. It is designed specifically for people who have never tried a role-playing game before to be able to get up and play and complete their first episode you know, within about an hour. Uh, so that if you have that friend, girlfriend, mom, uh, four-year-old kid that you really want to get into role-playing games, you have a product that you can bring to them that's really low investment in terms of time and energy, but that introduces them to all the fundamental concepts of what a good role-playing game should be. Uh, so, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what Dimensions is, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> all the nitty-gritty over the course of the next while, so... Yeah, cool. absolutely. We're looking right now, just with the little bit that we're going to be doing with you here, a ranger and a, a barbarian. Any other classes that we can look forward to in the, the full release? Why, yes, in fact. Uh, so we have designed over 40 unique character cards uh, for Season 1. Hmm. Um, and there is a unique aspect to this game in that the character cards, will, the physical character cards anyway, will actually be collectible. Uh, so as you open a starter kit, it contains everything that you need to play a game from scratch with, uh, for you and four friends, including you know, the four character sheets, a complete rule set, 24 dice, and a dry erase marker to be able to write on the cards. Uh, but if you and a buddy each open a pack and you both get a barbarian, you may not necessarily have the same barbarian. They may have different special abilities or different art. And so with that, you know, we have a number of classes that we've pre-built, and each of them has between 2 and 12 variations that will be seated in the packs at various rarities with the uh, more powerful ones obviously sitting at the high end, um, enabling people to really go nuts and have fun and see and explore the world in a new way. That's cool. interesting. So do, like, will there ever, is there a difference in, like, the barbarians' abilities or between the yes. barbarians or just their special abilities? Yeah, so their special ability is the key thing that sets each of the different character cards apart. Basically, we've identified, you know, the primary stats that define a given class. Sure. And then within that, we have uh, special abilities that allow them to be played in slightly different ways to teach people, you know, the different roles of the different classes uh, and how to interact with the game in the way that a traditional barbarian would feel or a traditional ranger would feel or whatever the case may be. So obviously there's a bit of a gap that you guys saw as far as accessibility what kind of led you to going, you know what, this is something that that could be filled? Yeah, so let me give you the long-form story. Uh, so I have been playing Pathfinder D&D for over a decade now, and uh, I met my first group. They were teaching me how to play. Uh, we had two sessions, and then on the third session, the DM ditched, and everybody looked at me and said, you run it. <laughs> and, uh, so I got thrown into the deep end pretty early on in, in my gaming career, you know, but in the 10 years since I have spent 
far, far, far more time DMing and teaching players how to play than anything else in the game. Uh, for the last five years, I've actually been professionally GMing, uh, going out to businesses and college campuses and things like that, teaching people how to play. And then uh, a little over three years ago, I started a game store. Um, okay. And as part of that process, I was interacting with new players every single week. And I got to hear the whole gamut of complaints and fears and things that were keeping people from playing games. Well, I went out into the cabin in the woods with a couple of my wife's friends. And one of them came up to me with a popular cup and dice game. Uh, you know, I obviously don't own the copyright, but uh, it was Yahtzee. <laughs> and asked, you know, you're a game store owner. Could we play D&D with this? And, you know, I, I love this man to death. He's a good friend of mine. But I knew for a fact that he was not a gamer. Right. <laughs> Candyland, Monopoly, Boggle, you know, the traditional kind of games. And so there was no way that I felt comfortable enough doing a pickup game in the middle of the woods with only D6s uh, without an established system in place and preparation and character cards and everything else. And it bothered me. So it became a, a personal challenge for me. And I sat on it for a year and a half and kind of molded over in my head and tried to reduce everything to its simplest forms. Uh, and then I had a breakthrough on a couple of the mechanics. One of the things that's unique about D6 systems is that mathematically they're very clunky. Uh, mm -hmm. In order to make a good D6 system work, you have to affect the numbers in a meaningful way mm -hmm. because you only have six options on a die. And that means that you're going to run into average numbers more consistently than on other dice. And so in order to make rolls meaningful, you have to do interesting things. Uh, and so I had this idea come into my head of a luck mechanic. And we'll talk about how that works in a little bit. But uh, I sat down and I hashed it out. And I felt good enough about it that I sat down and created my first prototype. Uh, and went out with a couple of friends, you know, who are longtime gamers and just tested it with them. 24 hours later, I had each one of them contact me individually and ask for a copy of the game. Hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting. So, you know, I told them, you know, it's not ready yet. And I did some iterations and I went out with a different group of friends a week or two later and we played and they had a great time. And within 48 hours, every single one of them had contacted me and asked me for a copy of the game. And I said, <laughs> OK, well, we're at eight of eight. Let's keep going. <laughs> and so the thing was, is that every time that I iterated upon the game and it was getting closer and closer to the vision that I had for it consistently everybody regardless of skill level was asking me for copies of the game and so i said okay we're on to something let's figure out how to turn this into something good and so you know it's been this journey from identifying that there was nothing that i felt comfortable teaching people how to play within an hour or two knowing that i would lose their interest to now we've created a system that in my opinion, you know, if we can get it to a wide enough audience could really impact the next generation of role-playing games because it is hugely accessible. The The time investment, the money investment are going to be very, very minimal. Anybody who has been afraid or, you know, worried about what it means to play a role-playing game should be able to sit down and at least try it. And if yeah. they don't like it, tweet me. You know, uh, throw all kinds of grief my way and I will fix it in a future version. But um, we're, we're very happy with the direction that it's been going. And, uh, you know, we've, in my opinion, met all of those goals of being able to make it accessible to anybody who wants to play. 
Well, and uh, just a quick question as far as accessibility goes. Uh, about how long do you have you found that a like the average session will run? Yeah, uh, great question. So I have played with a wide range of gamers, and when I have a group of strictly enfranchised players who know how to run a dungeon and debate and quibble over every small detail, you know, it can take a little bit longer. Uh, but the goal with all of our pre-made content is that the dungeons should be able to be completed in about an hour each. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes learning rules and choosing character cards and everything else. So that, again, if it's somebody's first time, they don't feel like it's an overwhelming commitment to have to figure it out. See, and for me, I think that's one of the biggest draws because I, I love D&D. That's why we do the podcast. But mm-hmm. sometimes it feels that first hour of D&D is set up and kind of getting things started. And so to have something that you can pick up and play relatively quickly on maybe a trip or something, even if you're used to a a higher end RPG is kind of nice. You can still play together. You can still do something and you can do it relatively quickly. Yeah. Well, and, and that actually leads me to something else that we've chosen specifically to design into this game, which is the form factor itself. The very first prototype of the game that I made was on little 36 millimeter by 36 millimeter square sheets that were laminated. uh, And I designed them that way specifically because I could fit them into the top of my chess Xbox um, so that it was a contained unit. I could bring it with me anywhere I wanted. And that vision has stayed with me through the duration of the development of the game. So, uh, you know, I sent some images over and we're going to be putting images up on our website over the next while. Uh, that shows some of the prototype boxes that we've gone through, but we have chosen a form factor that specifically fits into your pocket and contains everything that you need to play right out of the box. Yeah, I'd like, if if we could, can we go over, are we at a point where we could go over exactly, I mean, because our typical listener is going to be thinking about a whole D&D sheet, a whole 5e mm-hmm. sheet, and how to condense it. So could we go over, like, what are on these cards? and Yeah, what, absolutely. What, what stats are important? Yeah, and I'll, I'll even, I have a little spiel about how the stats all work, so I'll just jump into that, and you guys will learn how to play the game in, you know, five minutes or less here. Perfect. Uh, so uh, if any of you listening out there would like to follow along, we should have some images on our website uh, for you to be able to see a couple of the example character cards. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll try to include some stuff here for the uh, podcast that you can check out too. But uh, basically starting at the top left-hand corner of the card, there is a class name and a class icon. These are strictly for flavor. They do not affect gameplay, so we can ignore them. Immediately beneath that, there are four boxes. The first one is hit points, which, again, explaining this as though you have never played a role-playing game before, is how much damage you can take before you go unconscious. The entire party goes unconscious, you get eaten by monsters, and the game is over. Immediately to the right of that is a box where you notate your level. Again, this is all about uh, you know the growth of your character, the experience that you get. And as you level up, you earn additional stat points, hit points, and uh, you're able to reset your special ability, which is the next box in the lower right-hand corner. Special abilities usually have an ability that says once per level, do something or something else. Um, so, for example, on the Ranger card that uh, we're showing off here, once per level, your next attack hits two enemies instead of one, or you may reroll one failed attack. This is typically designed to be something that is you know, indicative of how the class works and enables you to do something unusual to progress the game state. 
Uh, every time that you level up, you reset your special ability, hence that once per level rider. Uh, we do have some static abilities that just function on their own, but they're typically reserved for uh, exclusive higher rarity characters. Uh, and then on the bottom left-hand side of the card, there is a box with five stats and a number of dots in it. And anybody who's played an RPG before will recognize four of these stats. Uh, the first is strength, which is your ability to crush a tomato or slam one into the side of your enemy's head. The second is dexterity, which is your ability to throw a tomato far and accurately or dodge one that's being thrown at you. The third is intelligence, which is your ability to know that a tomato is a fruit and or be able to summon one magically at will. The fourth is Charisma, which is your ability to sell a tomato-based fruit salad and or convince somebody that your tomato is secretly a dragon. <laughs> and the fifth stat is Luck, which has nothing to do with tomatoes whatsoever, so we'll explain it in just a minute. At any rate, uh, throughout the game, just like in a traditional role-playing game, you're going to be asked to make various checks. What that means is that you will roll a number of dice indicated by the dots underneath your given stat against a number that the storyteller has uh, displayed on their screen. In the event of one dot, you roll 1d6. In the event of two dots, you roll 2d6, etc. If at any time you decide that you do not want to roll the stat that, that the storyteller has asked you to roll, you can instead roll from your luck pool. You roll all of the dice that are in your luck pool at once. You don't add or subtract anything beyond that. Uh, whoever has the higher roll, regardless of what check you do, wins. In the event of a tie, ties go to the player. Now there's a special rule with luck. If you use your luck pool after all effects have resolved and you've determined who the winner is, you permanently lose a luck die. Hmm. You can earn additional luck dice by rolling all sixes on a given check, whether that's luck or anything else. So if you're rolling one die and you roll a six, you get a luck die as well as your result. If you roll two dice and get a 12, you get a luck die as well as your result, so on and so forth. Gotcha. Uh, and this, you know, earlier I was talking about the, the uh, awkwardness, the clunkiness of D6 systems. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to make the roles meaningful and the characters diverse, we needed to have the option to have stats that had one or zero dots in them. Uh, and this luck mechanic enables us to create a situation where it doesn't feel bad when a new player realizes that they're making a decision that they can't actually come through on. So, for example, uh, just as a limitation of the ranger, we decided that their charisma was going to be a score of zero. Now, a score of zero in this game does not mean that you have no charisma whatsoever. It means that you're average charisma. So you can still attempt to do things. You're just not going to be very good at them. So that means that they can either choose to automatically fail the roll or roll from their luck pool, uh, which to a new player who's learning the game, trying to figure out how to make their character work, that feels a lot better than just saying, well, you can't do anything. Get out. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, that fundamentally is all you need to know about the mechanics of the game to play. Uh, outside of that, there are a couple of questions that I always get asked. The first is, uh, obviously, what have I got in my pockets? Hopefully everybody <laughs> recognizes that reference. And the answer is, whatever you can get past the storyteller. This is a theater of the mind game. Uh, if you decide that you want to pull out a sword and slice off the goblin's head, that's awesome. Do it. If the next player says, I want to pull out my ray gun and shoot the next goblin in the head, and they can convince the storyteller that there's a logical reason that they have a ray gun in their pocket, congratulations, you have just crossed dimensions, and the first player is using outdated technology. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure that players feel free to explore the world and create their own stories uh, without the restrictions of needing to keep track of every little item and gold and everything else. And then right. the other question is around how combat works. 
So fundamentally, there are three types of attacks. The first is melee, which is hand-to-hand -hand combat. It uses strength. Second is range, which is you know anything out of range, which uses dex. And the third is magic, which uses intelligence. If you don't have uh, any pips in intelligence, then you cannot cast spells. That does not mean you are not intelligent, right? Still play the game, but sure. but yeah, that's fundamentally. I mean, that's everything that you need to know as a player to play the game. Awesome. Uh, now, the the final follow up question I have to this is: mm. I would assume that it is designed so that every dungeon you run would bring you up a level considering your special abilities are tied to level so the uh, the advice that we give to uh, storytellers who are creating their own adventures is that six xp should equate to a level up and so you should be assigning between one and three xp for every encounter that you go through based on the difficulty and the creative solutions of the players and things like that uh, okay. In our pre-built dungeons, uh, we've designed an adventure portal that'll launch on our website. It's built in HTML, so anybody will be able to access it as long as they have an internet-capable device. Uh, we have a number of pre-built adventures, and each of them is designed to level you up a minimum of once and a maximum of three times, depending on the length and difficulty of the level. Okay, so that, that could be potentially a multi-session ability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have, so we've designed, we're calling them seasons, right? Storylines that arc across multiple episodes. In our first season, plan on releasing three realms. The first realm is high fantasy. Obviously, it's the one people are most familiar with, and there are six episodes there. And so if you want to sit down, you have six hours, you play the entire thing in one night, you go for it. Level up your character the entire way. If you want to take it one at a time, uh, you know, at the start of every episode, there will be a recommendation about what level you should start at, and then you plug in what level you decide you want to start at and go from there. Okay. So you mentioned this kind of before we, we kind of talked, but you mentioned kind of plugging in what you want to use, what's recommended. Uh, you said there's an adaptive system available for play if you don't have maybe the correct size group or you have something different in mind. Yes. Uh, this is so um, there are two and I can't get super far into this because it's proprietary, but there are two pieces of technology, game technology that we have specifically developed for dimensions. And we'll talk about the second one in a minute once we actually get into the game. But uh, the first is this idea of an adaptive level episode where it takes into account the players in the party, their relative strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and the decisions that they make throughout the dungeon to be able to adapt encounters and checks uh, to meet the needs of the party. Now, I want to be very clear, this is not something that's going to dumb down your games and make it so that everything is easy mode. Uh, but the goal is to be able to right-size it. So if you're playing on your own, you're just testing it out for the first time, you don't want to bring anybody else in until you know what you're doing, you can run a dungeon on your own. Our recommendation is that you have between three and six players plus a storyteller uh you know the target ideal size is four plus a storyteller uh which is what we've designed the base get to accommodate but uh there are going to be plenty of options for you to be able to get in and do crazy things very cool well i think with that would you be comfortable kind of running us through uh a scenario absolutely i would okay so I, uh, we have a demo that's going to be releasing here in the next week or so on our website. It'll be free to play. I'm going to run you through a version of that demo. Uh, I don't have access to my player portal right now, uh, so I'm going to be running it off of memory. So thank you in advance for your patience. Oh, but uh, let's jump in. 
Uh, so just to let everybody know, uh, the two characters that we've put up are a ranger and a barbarian to help split up the party a little bit, give you some variability and things that you... But uh, we should just jump into it. So, Hyla Invictus leans across the table and looks at you conspiratorially and whispers as though the very walls can hear her speak. Are you sure you're ready for what you're going to encounter inside? She asks. Oftentimes that which you seek is not that which is required. You sit back for a moment and ponder the riddle that she seemed to leave you with, but without much regard to the looks on your faces, she jumps forward as loud as the sun is bright and yells, well, we best get onto it then. Let's go. She pulls a bag off her shoulder and drops it onto the floor and opens the brim. And as you look into the clearly empty bag, you realize that the bottom seems to shimmer a little bit. And as the edges of your vision fade to black, you're not quite sure whether you're getting smaller or it bigger but soon enough, everything is gone, and you find yourself being pulled in. After a moment of blackness, you realize that you touch down. No, and then you correct yourself. You've materialized. The floor was always there. It just didn't feel like it for a moment. And then the edges of your vision start to come into view, and you find yourself in a large octagonal room. Large roaring fireplaces sit in each corner, and four wooden doors banded with iron sit on each side. A wooden floor with carpet sits in the middle of the room, and you find yourself looking around. On each of the doors lies a set of runes. The first door has three runes, the first of which looks like a tree. The second door has three runes, the first of which looks like a box with a dot in the middle. The third door, turning clockwise still, uh, has a set of three runes, the first of which looks like a lightning bolt. And the final door, turning clockwise, has four runes. What would you like to do? Well, first of all, I'd like to sputter in indignation a little bit. I don't appreciate being thrown about like that. Uh, I've always felt at home in the woods. Why not investigate the, the tree door over there? Sure, Absolutely. Uh, so you step over, and uh, which door would you like to look at? The, the first one with the uh, the three runes with the tree in front. And uh, remind me, which character are you playing? I am the ranger. Excellent. So I need you to go ahead and make an intelligence check for me. <laughs> I have uh, one of those. Let's see what we've got. A uh, solid four. I have good news for you. A four beats a two. <laughs> As you approach the door, you feel the energy radiating off of the runes. This is clearly magically enchanted. And whatever is lying on the other side is beckoning you forward. Let's... I'm, I'm gonna swing it open. I, I'm, I'm confident in my ability to open doors. That is a good confidence to have. I think that'll serve you well in this game. So, you step forward... And as you begin to reach out your hand towards the door, you feel a magical pulse of energy, and it seems to pull you forward. The edges of your vision fade to black until all you can see is the glowing of the blue runes in front of you. And then they too disappear. Suddenly, you feel again yourself materializing. The ground beneath your feet coming solid, and then a flash of blue as your vision fades back into view. And you find yourself in a large octagonal room with four roaring fireplaces in each corner, one of them now out, and four wooden doors with iron bands. You look around, and pretty much everything else seems the same, except in the center of the room, you see a large fountain with four goblets. 
what would you like to do? Oh, no. Well, I have to go look at the goblets. Mm, excellent. Okay, so uh, you step forward and take a look at the four goblets. Uh, they seem to be oriented uh, to the four doors. And the first is a wooden goblet. The second is a jewel-encrusted pewter goblet. The third is a gold goblet, or, uh, ornate and covered in dragons. And the fourth, again, sitting immediately to your right, uh, is a iron tankard. Uh, clearly that rough-hewn traditional tankard of the, of the common laborer. I uh, rush forward and will grab the uh, gold goblet with the dragons and uh, uh, stuck it, stick it in my pack. First bit of loot. Excellent. That sounds like a good idea. You step forward and grab the dragon, and as you begin to put it, you know, the dragon-covered goblet, and as you begin to put it into your pack, it bites you. But you're able to get it into your pack all the same. There are three goblets sitting around the center of this fountain, and you notice that the runes on that door next to where the dragon was have now lit up. Uh, was that the one with the lightning on it? Indeed. Interesting. And the door with the tree on it, does it still have visible runes? So the other three doors do not have runes currently visible. Okay, just the lightning. Interesting. Before I lose the opportunity, I'm sure in this high fantasy world, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is uh, a special program that everyone is aware of. I feel the need to fill this wooden goblet up with water and drink from it. I, of course, have no idea what you're talking about, but uh, go ahead and make an intelligence roll for me. All right. I feel like this is important enough that I'm going to go ahead and use some luck die here because I'm not... I'm okay, but I'm not genius level. Uh, two fours. Okay, so your sum is six, and I have good news for you. A six beats a three. Excellent. As you reach forward and plunge the goblet into the pool of water and begin to drink from it, your partner notices that the runes on that door light up. And as you begin to drink, you feel kind of a warmth come from inside. Go ahead and gain two temporary hit points. They will last you through the end of the adventure. Huzzah. You now have two doors lit up with runes. What would you like to do? The, uh, uh, the door that lit up from the wooden goblet, is that the tree door again? Yes, it is. Well, we've been through that door. Do you want to go through the lightning door? Well, I i mean, I see you kind of gain some vitality with, with drinking from your goblet. I, I'd i like to pull that goblet out of my pack again. And is it is it still trying to nibble at me? As you reach into your pack, indeed, it does nibble on your fingers a little bit, but it's more of an annoyance than anything else. I'll uh, plunge it into the fountain. Excellent. Uh, would you like to make an intelligence check? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll spend some luck to do that. So I have to spend both my luck points at once, is that correct? Uh, yes, so you roll everything that's in your luck pool, but you only lose one die regardless of how many dice you have. Okay, great. A uh, total of six. A total of six. I have good news for you, a six beats a five. As you plunge the goblet into the pool, the water turns red, and mm. cracks form on the side of the fountain. The other two cups fall in and are lost, and you feel the goblet bite onto your finger. Take a point of damage. Ugh. 
you have chosen uh, Find yourself poorly. now in a room with a broken fountain spewing water everywhere. Uh, the goblets have, the other three goblets have been lost to time, although you are able to hold on to the wooden goblet. And there are two doors with runes on them. One that looks like a tree and one that looks like a lightning bolt. Well, nothing's, like to do? nothing's ever gone wrong being struck <laughs> by lightning. I say we go, we go to a new door. You step forward, and as you approach the door with the lightning bolt rune starting it, you feel the edges of your vision fade to black as you are pulled in towards it. And the last thing that you see is the flashing of the bright blue rune as it fades into darkness. And then once again, just as before, you feel yourself materializing as you've passed through the way. However, this time, as your vision fades back in, you notice something unique. Whereas before you were covered in armor and leather and were adorned with all kinds of medieval weaponry, you now find that your partner is wearing something unusual. And then the word springs to your mind. It's a jumpsuit. And on their hip, you see something weird. And on one of your hips, you recognize that it's a blaster. And on the other hip, you recognize that it's a scanner. And you think, well, that's awfully strange. I don't know what this is. And then you take in the room around you. You see in the four corners, large screens spewing data down and telemetrics and all kinds of nonsense that you'd never hope to be able to read. One of those screens is burned out. Then, on the four edges of the room, you see four wooden doors with iron bands, just like the ones that you've seen in the previous rooms. However, now all the walls are made of metal, and you see conduits running all over the place, and you hear a faint humming in the background. In the center of the room, you see a large pedestal, with a circular top and three buttons arranged in a triangle. One of them is red, one of them is green, and one of them is blue. And as you approach the pedestal, you realize that the top spins so that you can orient those buttons in any direction that you wish. What would you like to do? Hmm. First of all, are either of us wearing a red jumpsuit? Yes. In fact, both of you are wearing red jumpsuits. I want out of this room desperately. Good news for you. You will probably figure a way out <laughs> one way or another. Is, is the screen that is burnt out the same screen in relation to the fireplace that was burnt out hmm that's an interesting thought uh how do you want to orient yourself in the room none of the runes are lit up currently correct correct so i don't really know specifically necessarily which door would be which have we materialized in roughly i mean the room's going to look fairly similar so it'd probably appear as though we materialize facing roughly the same direction every time yeah, so uh, you're facing towards the center of the room. You're slightly closer to one door than the other. If we're slightly closer to one door, I will assume, right or wrong, that that is the lightning door, and I will orient myself in the direction that the tree door would have been in the first room. Hmm, that seems like an intuitive thing to do. So, orienting yourself that way, you think back to what you saw in the previous room. And sure enough, the fireplace that was out corresponds to the screen that is out in this room. Interesting. But there's nothing lit up on the doors. Correct. <clears throat> and the fountain is replaced with a pedestal with buttons. Mm -hmm. So whatever we did in the last room did not trigger something similar to when I went through the first door. And I think something so is going on with these screens. 
let's let's go take a look at that pedestal. Excellent. So you approach the pedestal, and again, you realize that the top spins to be able to orient those buttons in any direction that you wish, as long as they stay in that triangle pattern. You notice that there is a green button, a blue button, and a red button. And currently, the blue button is facing the door with, you know, based on your orientation that would have had the tree on it. And trees are green, right? Trees, trees are green. I mean, it depends on the world. <laughs> that's that's very true. I have seen some purple trees. Well, there's not a purple button. You, that maybe we just need to hit red and blue at the same time. Why don't we? <laughs> why don't we? You know what? You're a button pusher. You push whatever you want. Uh, uh, I I I'm gonna blindly spin this thing and just smack my hand down. Okay, that sounds like a fun thing. So I'm going to go ahead and roll a d6 on my end, and we'll see which button orients towards which door. Okay, so I have an orange die and a pink die. The orange die will represent the door. On the 5 or a 6, I will re-roll, and the pink die will be divisible by 3. Here we go! Okay, i got to re-roll my orange die. Excellent. So, you wildly spin this pedestal. Colors just blur together. It's a beautiful thing. And then you slam your hand down and you find that you have oriented the red button towards the door with the tree on it. At least if the runes were there. I just burned down the forest. Excellent. He slams his hand onto the red button and for a moment nothing happens. Then you see the button light up red. And as you look at the door, for a moment some runes flash in red and then disappear. They are the runes that start with the tree. So, the humming in the room gets louder. What would you like to do? I don't like louder humming. I don't think that was correct, especially because the the lights went away this time, and previously those those runes stayed lit. Uh, I don't think we want red on trees. Well, let's let's make it green. Okay, Easy enough. You step forward and spin the pedestal, you know, what is that, uh, 120 degrees? or, And uh, you orient the blue button towards the, uh, or excuse me, you wanted green? Yeah, please. Sorry. You orient the green button towards that door that had the, uh, the flashing tree rune on it. And you slam your hand down on the green button. For a moment, nothing happens. And then the button lights up green. And you see a flash of runes on the door, this time in green instead of red. They are still the same rune. The buzzing gets louder. You know what? I this this is probably a terrible mistake. I'm sure we're running out of time, but we are in red shirts. This red button has to be important. I'm gonna face it towards a new door, the door to the left of the tree door, and I'm gonna hit red. That sounds like an idea. So you spin the wheel towards the left door. You hit the red button. Or excuse me, you hit the red button? Yep. Yes. Cool. So you hit the red button. Nothing happens. And then the buzz gets louder. So you now currently have a green button and a red button lit up. And a very loud uh, buzz coming from all around you. Green and red are lit up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll spin the blue button back to the first door and hit it. That sounds like an excellent idea. You spin the pedestal towards that first door, you hit the blue button, and you see for a moment the rune flash in blue. Then the runes on all of the doors light up. 
but the door with the tree rune on it is glowing white, while the others are all glowing uh, kind of a teal, uh, like a rusted copper. <laughs> white oh. is different, and it is the only one. I'm tempted to go through that tree door again. The rest of these are freaking me out. Yeah, that's is that what that, you do. That's fine. So you step forward towards the uh, door, the white runes on it, and as you approach it, you feel something repulsing you. And no matter how hard you push, that door will not open. Well then, you, you may have better luck than me. Where would you like to go, my friend? Uh, the fourth door that we didn't have a discernible rune on before, does it have any discernible runes now? Uh, yes, so the thing that sets this door apart from the others is that it has four runes instead of three. Mm-hmm. And none of them are recognizable? Uh, no. Some of them some of them are similar to the runes that you see on the other door, but none of them are the same. <clears throat> well, let, let's try the lightning one again. Excellent. You step towards that door, and as you approach it, you see the edges of your vision fade to black, just like before, and you feel yourself being pulled through the lay. Until all you can see is that glowing, you know, rusted copper room. Then, with a flash of green, your vision begins to fade back in, and you find yourself in a different room. But first you hear, before you see, the hiss of steam and the click of gears. And then you come into a room where you see in the four corners large glass vials filled with a pulsing energy that you immediately recognize as Aether, despite the fact that you have never seen or heard of such a thing before. <laughs> and as you look at each other, you see large top hats, leather vests, and strange mechanical objects strapped to all different parts of your body. In the center of the room sits a large metallic figure facing away from you. Oh, and I should also mention that uh, one of those Aether glasses burned out. What did you say was strapped to our sides? Uh, mechanical devices. I purposefully left that open to your interpretation. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to pull out my grappling hook and zip on over to that statue. That sounds like an exciting thing to do. Go ahead and make a dex check for me. A two and a five. Seven total. Excellent. Seven beats six. So, you pull out your grappling hook. <laughs> You hear kind of a hiss as a compressed steam compartment releases and shoots the thing across the room. You zip the entire six feet and come to a stop in front of this large metal automaton. You know, it may have been a short ride, but it was an exciting one. Hold up. You said automaton. What have I gotten myself into? Is it moving? Uh, it is not currently moving, although it's very interesting that that word came to mind. <laughs> I'm going to kind of polish off the spot I just hit with that grappling hook just in case it wants to be mad at me later. Okay, uh, that's fair. There's still a nice little dent in it, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna check this thing out. Okay, so as you step around the automaton, you notice a small indent on its back. Just large enough for a finger. Mm. Hey, uh you've already been bit by a goblet. You wanna be bit by something else? <sighs> I will walk over, eye it. I'm, I'm still curious about these, these, you say they were glass vials of ether? Yes. Glass is breakable, right? <laughs> How big are these vials? Uh, they're pretty big, about three feet tall and a good solid eight to ten inches around. Okay. 
okay. the diameter, I should say. Okay. So I, I I'm, I'll go look around this automaton and I'll, I'll say, um, if this thing uh, comes alive, reckon we could use these vials to end it quick? Uh, I mean, it might end more than just it quick, but in, a, in an emergency, I'm all for it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Ah, well, it's the first first talking thing. Well, it, it doesn't talk, but it might talk. The first thing that might talk since we've been in this place. I'm willing to go for it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push the button or stick my finger in the hole. Then I'm going to scurry back to one nearby one of those vials of ether. You stick your finger in the hole and begin to scurry backwards. It catches on the edge of the compartment that you have now opened. Inside the automaton, you see a number of gears and things that you can only assume are some kind of circuitry. And in the center of his back lie three switches. One of them is the fir- reading left to right. The first one is flipped down. The second one is flipped up. And the third one is flipped down. What would you like to do? I uh, flip the two down ones up at the same time, if I can. Ooh, at the same time. That's exciting. You flip the two switches up. You hear two sounds. And then the automaton's arm twitches outwards and takes a swipe at you. Uh. Go ahead and roll a dexterity check to see if you can dodge. All right. A five. The good news is he rolled a one, so you deftly jump out of the way, and now we have entered combat. Combat typically begins with the player to the left of the storyteller. Uh, since I'm looking at you digitally, I'm going to say that's Zach. Great. So, uh, I I mean, everything's a hammer. So this is just a mechanical hammer for the barbarian at my side. Beautiful. Uh, I will I will pull that hammer free and take a swing at this uh this automaton. Excellent. Go ahead and make a strength check for me if you will. Okay. Uh so we're looking at a fifteen. Oh, excellent. Good job. A fifteen beats a nine. So you swing through the air, the automaton tries to defend itself, but you knock his arm clean off. He takes three points of damage. Okay, take it away. Uh well, I noticed that I had this weird pistol-looking gizmo at my side and what appeared to be ball bearings in a pouch on my belt. So I'm just going to fill that thing up and aim for uh, the, the glass on its eye, try to hit a weak spot on it. Ooh, excellent. That sounds like fun. Go ahead and make a dexterity check for me. Uh, not particularly brilliant. I have a two and a two for four. Ooh, I have bad news. I rolled a six. So you pull out your little aether-powered gun, you load it, you aim it towards him, and you feel the pulse of energy as the aether courses through and powers up the charge inside. The bullet skitters across the room, bounces off the automaton's skull, and does no damage. Okay, now the automaton, a little bit annoyed at you, is going to take a swing at Zack. Zack, go ahead and make a strength check for me. Okay. Not as good this time. We've got a nine. Mm. Well, the good news is that this automaton is missing an arm, so as he tries to swing at you, you catch his arm in midair and wrench it off. Ooh. And he takes three points of damage. He's looking pretty worse for wear at this point, kind of dented and scratched and missing two arms. It's not a great look. Okay, top of the round. 
Does does he look like he can do anything at this point, or is he? I mean, other than being big, that's an interesting question. You, it seems like there isn't very much that he can do, but he's still putting up a fight, and you hear a faint buzzing. <clears throat> well, let's uh, let's stop the buzzing. I'll I'll swing, and I'll try to uh, I'll try to take the head off the frame there with a nine. Yeah, nine beats a three. So, you take a swinging as you want to do just with your hammer or a roundhouse kick. What sounds like fun to you? Oh, just another hammer. Just another Excellent. hammer. This hammer swings through the air, its spring bending backwards so that it snaps into place just in time to knock the automaton's head clean off. You see a burst of energy, and then the remains of the automaton fall to the floor. Hmm. That wasn't so bad. As you look around the room, each of the doors lights up with the runes that you've seen before in roughly the same pattern that you've seen before. But this time, they glow a deep purple. See, we were onto something with that red and blue at the same time. They wanted us to do that. That's what the purple is for, clearly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I I will march over before we leave, before we try a door. Are these uh, vials of ether attached in any way to the floor? Or uh, Yes, so there are large conduits leading out of them, huge metal pipes, uh, mm. brass and copper. Uh, this thing is going to be hugely heavy and difficult to remove. Okay. Well, just go kick around the body of this automaton and see, is there any... I'm looking for specifically any runes or any markings on it that match any of the doors... Nothing intelligible. Okay. Well, I'm fine with going through another lightning door, if, if that sounds good to you, or if we're going to try a tree again. or I think I want to try, wanna try uh, not the four-room door, but the you said it was like a clock? Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the second door working clockwise uh, is like a box turned on its side with a single dot in the middle. Okay. Let's... I, I, I want to try the box. Sweet. You step forward, and once again, just like in every other experience up until this point, everything begins to fade to black at the edges of your vision until all you can see are these glowing purple runes. Now, uh, in the interest of time, I'm actually going to cut this a little bit short and skip you through the next section. So, before you begin to feel anything or see anything, you first smell something. And as you begin to figure out what it is, you realize that the smell of good port and strong meat. And then you begin to hear things. Clatter of silverware and the scraping of somebody moving a heavy barrel across the floor. And then, surely enough, as your vision fades in, you see that you are standing in the middle of a tavern. A rich spread set out in front of you, and there at the end of the table sits Isla Invictus, looking glum. She takes a look at you and says, Hmm, tell me, did you find what you seek? Or that which you needed. Hmm. Neither. That seems to be correct. And as you reach and you realize that you everything back to normal, you reach into your pocket to see if you were able to pull that goblet or anything else, and there's nothing there. She looks at you and says, Surely enough, you often can't take that type of thing with you. But perhaps someday you'll come back to me and explore my emporium once again and find something of greater value. I feel like there's something important in your future. So, until we meet again. And with that, she turns on her heel and leaves. 
over her shoulder she yells, oh, and enjoy the feast. Thank you everybody for participating in the, uh, the miniaturized version of the demo. That is a, a piece of the demo. Uh, there were some things that you took a little bit longer on and some things that uh, you created some innovative solutions on. I have a four-digit number for you. It is one one, or excuse me, one three three two, and I'm not going to tell you what that means, but you know, feel free to stow that away. Okay. Very cool. So that took it my close approximation about 40, 45 minutes. Does that sound mm-hmm. about right to you? Very yep, good. Yep. Awesome. So hypothetically, if we'd have went through the whole thing, we'd have we'd have leveled up once at the end of that, after that encounter adventure. Talk to me. I've just got a, a few questions here, just because it's something that struck me right out the gate. A lot of times with these these more simple card games or role-play games, one of the things that they do away with is leveling. And you obviously have retained the leveling aspect. So tell me how that, explain how that works to me. Yeah, so when you level up, a couple of things happen in a very particular order. Uh, so the first is you roll a d6 and add that much to your maximum hit points. Okay. And the second thing is you heal up to your maximum hit points. If you have somehow retained the temporary hit points that raise you above where you're at, you just stay where you are. You don't drop down. The third thing that you do is you add a die to your luck pool. The fourth thing that you do is add a die to any other pool, meaning non-luck. Hmm. And then the fifth thing that you do is you refresh your special ability. And at that point, you have leveled up. Now, when you say add a die to your other pools, if you do not have any die for a particular stat, are you do you ignore that pool? No, you are more than welcome to spread your dice however you wish. Uh, okay. In fact, one of the key principles of the game that uh, I encourage players to experiment with, uh, because you have an increased chance of adding luck dice to your pool with a lower stat, I want you to take the time to explain what it means to be your character, all the stories week right you know so if you want to just strictly min max the game and bust your way through you can do it and you'll have a wonderful time if you want to explore every nook and cranny would probably suit you better to have as balanced of a party as possible okay cool makes sense so one the other thing that i had uh, a question about on your end of things as the storyteller what what does it look like to run a a creature from that side is that the same type of stats same type of array or yeah so yeah so uh the adventure portal that we've designed at its simplest form functions like a choose your own adventure so you have blocks of text and then at the bottom you have clearly labeled choices uh, and you prompt the players to make those choices when you encounter a check it will say int two or dex one or whatever the case is and that indicates what you as the storyteller will roll Uh, With monsters, it's a little bit more complex, right? Uh, Which is why we tend to introduce monsters a little bit later in the level. Storytellers have gotten comfortable. Uh, Which is that you see a miniature stat box lays a couple of items. Uh, The first is hit points. The second is the four primary stats. Monsters do not have luck. And then if they have any special abilities, there's a stat block uh, that lists how those work. Uh, and then the final thing is uh, how that monster behaves. Um, now, one of the goals that we have with our Kickstarter is actually to increase the functionality of the adventure portal. And we have designed some algorithms that intelligent 
uh, to be able to enable monsters to tell you what the most likely action should be based on the interactions of the characters and what their strengths and weaknesses are. That is a feature that will roll out in a later version. Until that point, we have a guide for teaches you how to interact with those monsters. Sweet. Okay, that's cool. That's that's. I mean, those were the two questions that popped into my mind while we were playing. Yeah, that was the biggest one for me. It seems like, obviously, that there was some set structure to what was supposed to be happen. Again, it's a, a more of a simplified RPG, so there's not necessarily the full sandboxy environment that people may be used to, but there's still certainly quite a lot of improv for the storyteller to go through with the players as they, they navigate the, the spaces that they're given. Yeah, we didn't, uh, we didn't want to take away the opportunity of the storyteller to be able to improvise and allow the players to play what we call the rule of cool. We actually, in the base rules, establish three rules towards the end that are called the gold and silver and bronze rules of storytelling. And essentially all that they boil down to is saying, if you and your players are creating a better story than the one on the screen, ignore what's there and go off and do your own thing. And it teaches you how to do that. The other concept that we've introduced uh, that you'll see as you begin to uh, run some of these games is we have what are called hard nodes and soft nodes. A node is any time that a decision needs to be made or text needs to be advanced to the next screen. And hard nodes are things that people conceptually understand. Standing in a room, there are two doors out. Those are my options, right? Uh, The soft node is more of a situation where I'm standing inside of a cage. There's a door with a lock on it or up at the top, it's open. And the player says, no, I want to cast a fireball and melt the side of the cage. In those situations, yeah. we have enabled essentially an escape button for the storyteller to be able to say the player's passed or failed this given scenario to advance to the next screen, and it prompts you to leave a note saying what happened. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm personally going to review all of those. It will take me many hours. This will be the primary function of my job for the next year. But the goal is, is that if we see that players are making a choice consistently, we can program it into the game. We can update what's going on, right? And if players are consistently always taking the left door in a given thing, we'll add something in that maybe makes it more appealing to go to the right or all kinds of different things. The goal, again, is that as a storyteller, your job is not to be in opposition to players, but to be an aid to them to explore the world in a way that, you know, first-time role players are not familiar with. Yeah, it's, it's very like what you said at the beginning um, is exactly true that a lot of times what you need or what you wish you have is a stepping stone game, something that you can introduce to those people who are new to an RPG and get them right into it. This definitely feels like that. And I would say that it also it has the mechanics there, but I also like that it doesn't leave behind the telling the story aspect that a lot of the newer RPGs have. You know, I don't know. Like a lot of the a lot of the simplified games are just a lot of dice rolling, and here it's got a lot of dice rolling, but it also brings along the story elements as well. And I do like that side of things. Absolutely, my my absolute favorite rule in the entire game is the most non-rule that I've ever written for a game, which is what have I got in my pockets? Yeah, I was about <laughs> uh, to mention the same thing. I, I think that's really what kind of makes it all work. Yeah, um, it's and it's my favorite thing as we've been testing this. You know, I've put over a thousand hours of development and testing into this game at this point. I've watched literally hundreds of groups work their way through problems. 
And inevitably, there always comes a point where you're sitting at a table of four people and one of them, the light bulb turns on <laughs> and they look at you and they say, well, can I do this or can I can I have this? Yeah, go for it. Make a roll. You know, if, if I want it to be hard, I'll make it hard. But the mathematics of the game say that you can't roll more than five dice, which means that always if you're rolling one die and I'm rolling five, I can roll five ones. And if you roll a five or a six, you win. Right. Uh, and so watching, you know, brand new players realize that it's not like a traditional video game where you have to understand all of the mechanics and all of the stats and how do I min max what do I have to choose between is a cool experience. And then watching the enfranchised players that have gotten burned out from reading stat blocks for hours on end, trying to figure out how to maximize the efficiency of their character, realize that I want a lightsaber and they pull it out and they turn it on and it comes to life and they feel the force rumble around them. And that's a cool feeling. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, that's the whole reason that we call it dimensions and why we're releasing multiple worlds across. We want to encourage players to go back to that root, that feeling of what it's like to explore a world for the first This game will never be a replacement for D&D. That's not its goal. It's sure. an introduction. It's a stepping stone, and it's a refresher. I want players who have been playing games for years to have an idea in their head about try a puzzle or I want to try a dungeon and pull this out and use it as a rapid prototyping where they can sit down with the friends and say, we're going to take 15 minutes and I'm just going to run you through this. And for the brand new player you know, who has a girlfriend who says, you know, I saw Critical Role for the first time. We want them to be able to have an approachable opportunity mm. to re to join this world, this awesome community. And I'll let you in on a secret that uh, we're not going to discuss in great detail, <laughs> which is that uh, my sponsor has intimated or, uh, that if this is successful, if we can make it a financial success to a minimum number of metrics, that I'm greenlit for two additional role-playing games. Oh, that's awesome. So Very the cool. grand vision being that we create a three-tier system, with the first being Dimensions, and the third being a D&D &D equivalent, and then a one in the middle that introduces you know, the traditional D7 or 7 set, and concepts like space and you know what's the range and what happens when i cast a fireball and my barbarian is sitting two feet away <laughs> you know and that really helps players to step up and that's what i see dimensions as is you know just like the name implies a gateway now you Not say that's a secret mm -hmm. do you want me to cut that from what i put on no, no, no. Please share it with the world. It'll just be something that we don't talk about, and if anybody ever sends me a tweet about it, I will reply cryptically and say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, and if we do hit some of those funding goals in Kickstarter or in our six, first six months of operation, I will shout it from the rooftops and come back on the show, and you can ask <laughs> me all the questions that you want about the new mechanics that I've been tucking away for the last two years. Awesome. Well, that's, a, I think, a good segue into tell us tell us a little bit more about your Kickstarter and what you're what you're hoping to get out of it. Or, yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the biggest thing, the primary focus of the Kickstarter is actually to create uh, unique art assets for the game. We have designed our own logo, obviously, and we have style guides and things like that. Uh, but particularly the character art and the realm art that we have right now is stock art. Yeah, uh, that we purchased at a discounted rate to be able to fill everything in and give people a flavor. A fun, well, not very fun and embarrassing story about that is uh, as we were 
prototyping uh, the final layout for these character cards, we picked the pieces of art, you know, one and two at a time uh, over the course of a month and a half. And then we sent it all off to the printers and they sent us back our first proofs. And it was the first time that I had seen all of the characters side by side. And we recognized something that frankly is awful. Uh, do many of the styles just not, do they clash? Even worse. Of the nine characters that we had prototyped, one of them was a woman. <laughs> and all of them were white, with the exception of one character who, because of the art style, we had had to color correct to make it match in with what was going on. And we had accidentally turned him white. Oh, <laughs> and I sat down with my art team and I said, how did this happen? And we went through the 600 character portraits that we had downloaded over the course of the previous two months. And of all of them, there was a disparagingly low count of women and there were almost no non-white characters. And hmm. so I pulled my partner into the room and we spent the next couple of hours online diving between five different stock photo sites. And across all five of those sites, again, it just rang true. Everybody was this white, you know, crazy, masculine, or unfortunately, in some cases, overly sexualized woman. And it was not representative of the community that we have today. It was not representative of the stories that we've wanted to tell. And in the few cases where we did find people of color or people of a different build, it was overly sexualized or created a feeling that just does not match up with what we want to present the first time player. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, we pivoted our entire strategy for our Kickstarter. Um, and you'll see that as you look through the site over the next couple of weeks, there's lots of text that's being updated as we have now reoriented. Our We've contacted a particularly talented artist uh, who's agreed to work with us to create character. Uh, and we want them to be diverse. We want them to be representative of the community as a whole. And we hope that as we create this, it will inspire the next generation of RPG art to produce, you know, in a way that's actually representative of the kind of values that we can communicate through a community. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's mm -hmm. unfortunate the way it kind of came up and, and how you kind of came to that realization but honestly for a kickstarter like this especially with the way the game is designed as far as the collectability of the cards how it's pretty minimalistic theater of the mind the art ultimately i think is going to be one of the coolest parts about collecting these pieces so for yeah. a kickstarter goal i think that's a, a great drive uh regardless even more so uh to kind of help bring in that inclusivity because that is <laughs> That is quite unfortunate. I was going to make a joke that they were all elves because I feel like I, I trounce on elves all the time in our, our podcast. But uh, no, that's a, a very, very good goal for, for yeah. the Kickstarter so, to have. So, you know, our, our base goal for Kickstarter is $15,000, which for a Kickstarter for a first-time board game is achievable, right? If we can get the word out, if we can get enough people invested and excited about what we're producing, I think that that's a completely reasonable goal. And that $15,000 is explicitly fund art. The character cards themselves, uh, we've designed that there will be a first edition printing and then a general printing of two different styles of art. Uh, and then again, the character classes have a number of different special abilities. Uh, each of the cards also has a six-digit code in the lower left-hand corner that you'll be able to go online additional free content. 
uh, mm -hmm. including digital character sheets. Uh, when you redeem your first four characters, it'll unlock a free adventure as well as additional digital characters uh, so that you'll have a total of eight to play with and an adventure to learn your way through. And then uh, as we scale up from there, uh, we've got some great goals. Uh, the first is we want to introduce the next two realms early. Uh, so they are Victorian steampunk and dystopian sci-fi. So think one. Oh, yeah. Um, both very distinct, right? They function yeah. mechanically in very unique ways from a high fantasy world. And mm -hmm. uh, we think that that's really important. We've written out the story, uh, you know, the overarching storyline that's going to tie them all together as season one. Really excited to reveal bits of that to the world. But then on from there, you know, it's quality of life improvements, funding additional art and characters for the game. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the high-end goal is $90,000. If we can crack that, then we are going to turn the campaign creator that we've developed for ourselves public face. Uh, we're going to give it a major facelift and add a whole bunch of features and turn it into something that anybody should be able to step forward and use to build their own stories from scratch. Well, that's cool. Um, and for those of you that are interested and want to dump money on me, uh, the highest tier on our Kickstarter is Become a God. Uh, we have a pantheon of gods, six of them, and we've purposely left one of them unnamed. Uh, for a mere $10,000, <laughs> you can become a permanent part of RPG history. And, of course, we hook you up with all kinds of swag and limited paintings, and you get 15 copies of the game that you can collectors' copies of the game you can distribute to your friends so if you and 14 people want to get together and bill you just get in contact with me and i'll make sure that we make it work <laughs> but uh you know i think the biggest thing and, and this is you know what i think i'll leave you the goal with dimensions is that if you have ever felt isolated or alone or worried or confused about how to play an rpg or how to connect with the community this is the game for you if you know somebody who feels that way or you want to be able to have some freedom in defining what it means to play an RPG with your group, this is an RPG for you. It is not the end-all be-all, but we hope that this is a stepping stone to allow you as players and your friends to connect in a new and unique way. Awesome. So, so you said that your Kickstarter is launching April 2nd. Yep, April 2nd. Uh uh, right now, you can go to dimensions.games, and uh, you can read more about the project, sign up for an email list uh, that'll give you notifications as soon as we go live. Uh, if we do have any last-minute delays or anything like that, uh, also let you know that way. Very cool. Well, is there any... Uh, I, I feel like you probably just hit them by their ending, any ending... Wow, I cannot talk anymore. Any ending statements that you would like to kind of give our listeners before we go yeah again try it if it's a system that doesn't work for you shoot me a tweet at talon or email me at alton at dimensions.games and i will be more than glad to take your feedback the first year of this project is going to be a huge learning experience and we hope to develop a game that everybody very cool for those listening, I will have links to the website. At some point, since the Kickstarter isn't live yet, maybe I'll re-update this, try and get a link in for the Kickstarter once that goes up as well. If not, I'll tweet it out for sure, kind of give you guys some promo that way. But thank you thank for you. talking with us. Um, I'm excited to see a little bit more. I hope this goes well for you. I personally know uh, uh, quite a handful of people I think this would be 
a good tool for to try and get them more comfortable with kind of figuring out how to get into the game. So I'm I'm personally quite excited for it. Thank you. And uh, as a thank you to you guys, uh, once our Kickstarter does launch, we're actually going to hook you up with an affiliate code. So anybody who signs up through you uh, wants to support the channel by supporting us, we'll make sure that we get a kickback uh, over to Bite of D&D and uh, help you guys to grow your channel. Very cool. uh, appreciate that. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your game with us. I also am very excited to to see another person in the community getting to to have their thing and to grow their thing and to share it with the community. Always, always an exciting moment. So really appreciate you. you. All righty. I think we're going to end the podcast there, guys. So as always, tune in to A Bite of D&D every week as we add flavor to your games and campaigns. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. We're on iTunes and everywhere else that you can find your local podcast. And we'll see you next week. See ya.